You're listening to audio from The Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at thevillagechurch.net. Good morning. My name is Abigail Zuniga, and I'm part of the student leadership team. And this morning, I'm going to be reading Psalms 145, verses 1 through 9. I will exalt you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your work to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on, the, on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and I shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abundant in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is all over that he has made. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. That will be our passage today. I've just broken it up into two sections. Uh, We'll get to it. Uh, But man, this weekend... Uh, was on the preaching calendar uh, months ago, uh, and I have found myself uh, with a lot of energy on the topic, so I'm just warning you, not apologizing, just warning you uh, right out of the gate that I am feeling deeply this morning, uh, and what I'm wanting to do is cast a vision for us, not just our students, but for us to be a place that commends his works to the next generation and what it would look like to step into this particular moment in human history with the love and the power of the gospel and, and sacrifice for what will live on after us. And that's, that, that's really the heart behind uh, what I want to talk about today, and this is the perfect passage for it. I, I was uh, at a conference years ago now, uh, and David Kinneman was sharing at the, the conference. He's the president of Barna, uh, which is a reputable research organization that researches for the church, the the hope in their research is to lift up a mirror, an honest mirror. You tracking with me? Like an honest mirror so the church can see what's actually going on and respond. Uh, And they had done this massive, uh, they had done this massive kind of project where uh, across, I think, nine countries, 25 different languages, they, they, they followed uh, like a ton of 18 to 35-year-olds, and they just started asking questions about faith, uh, started asking questions uh, about spirituality. They, they started to ask those kinds of questions. He was rolling out the, the data, and here are some of the, um, here are some of the key trends uh, that, that are, uh, according to this research, and I would say uh, all research at this point, is true of the generation uh, that is behind most of us. I'm not calling you old. I'm just saying you're not sitting over here, and some of you are sitting over here, and you shouldn't be sitting over here. I know who you are. You're not uh, in middle school. You're fine. But when I'm looking over here, I might not necessarily be looking at you, Jim. And, and so, um, now, um, here are the findings of that research about um, millennials, uh, down to Gen B, Gen Z. Okay, so um, younger millennials, not like my, my wife's beautiful woman. She's what they literally call a geriatric millennial, uh, which means she's on that line between Gen X and being a millennial. That I get to remind her of that. It's been a good gift of God's grace. I'm just straight up X. 
And, and I like that. I'm not upset about that. I, I have lived long enough to now know that we were supposed to destroy Christianity and we didn't. Uh, and then the millennials were supposed to and they didn't. And now Gen Z is supposed to and they won't. And, and so that's a good place to be sitting as an older man. But here's what's true. Here are the trends. Um, uh, younger millennials and Gen Z all agree that they are connected but feel alone. They are connected but feel alone. Despite being hyper-connected and globally minded as a generation, most young adults and students say they feel lonely. That there is a vibrant spiritual openness among the next generation. Now, the data shows that if you leave the faith, that's much less and actually you become more hostile. But by and large, the next generation is curious about spiritual realities. They're super open to it. Now, this would explain the rise in, maybe you're seeing this, maybe you're not, the, the rise in uh, witchcraft and, and in new age stuff because they're hungry for transcendence in a world where um, transcendence has been pushed out. All right? They're spiritually open. They're not angry and thrashing about. They're curious unless they were a part of a church and left it. And then they're angry and frothy. And maybe they deserve to be in some cases, right? Maybe they deserve to be in some cases. We, we also found in the data that this is very much an age of anxiety, worry and insecurity, often tied to finances, vocation, and, and safety, right? It is a huge, like just racked with anxiety. This is a refrain, no matter who you talk to about this moment in history, is it's an anxious age. Everybody's just waiting for the next thing. Like if you think about just what COVID did to adults, what do you think it did to people where it's like 30% of their life? Where maybe school was the only safe space they had and then that was gone. What, what do you do in, in that world where in a moment the world can shut down? Like that, I'm almost 50. That was a first for me. But, but what if you're a third grader and that happens? What if you're a ninth grader and that happens? What do you, like what does that do to your soul? So it's an age of anxiety. Here's what's great. They really are looking for answers. All the data point says that human suffering and global conflict are among the top issues that honestly raise spiritual doubts for the next generation. They're curious at how to make sense of the brokenness of the world. And then I love this, and what an opportunity. Um, this generation is longing to make a, a difference. What they're drawn to, what they want to participate in, especially in a community of worship. It is the opportunity to fight injustice and for friends to join them along the way. So these are, these are kind of the trends among the next generation. Now, one of the things that was really painful, and like I said, Barna's not trying to win friends. They're, they're trying to be honest so that we can have an honest conversation about this. One of the things that the project revealed is that in a decade to 15 years, a million church kids walked away. A million church kids walked away. Not unbelieving, becoming believing, but grew up in church, grew up in vacation Bible school, grew up going to Sunday school, and somewhere along that 18 to 30-year-old space said, forget this for whatever reason. And we know some of the reasons, and they bailed. They, they walked away. And here's, here's what came. I want you to see how this broke down, this million-plus broke down. Um, or, or really, it's actually bigger than the million plus. It's like of the survey, here's what we found. 
Um, 22% of those surveys uh, identified themselves as prodigals or ex-Christians. That, that's the bucket. And here's, uh, they do not identify themselves as Christians despite having attended a Protestant or Catholic church as a child or teen or having considered themselves to be Christian at some time. So in the scope of the research, you had 22% of them say, I grew up in church, uh, I, I grew up going to camp or I went to a Christian school and forget all that nonsense. I'm out. Right? That was 22%. 30% are what they called or classified as nomads or lapsed Christians. And they would define that as they identify themselves as Christians, but have not attended church during the past month. And the vast majority of nomads haven't been involved with a faith community for six months or more. So this is a massive group of people. They would say, I'm a Christian. Do you go to church? No. When's the last time you were involved in anything spiritual? Can't remember. But you're a Christian. Yep. Now, the next category is what I have felt like I have spent 20 years trying to air war the mess out of as the pastor of the village church. The next bucket, 38%, are what they just called habitual churchgoers. And here's how that's defined. They describe themselves as Christian and have attended church at least once in the past month, yet do not have foundational core beliefs or behaviors associated with being an intentional, engaged disciple. Church folk who have no intention of loving or following Jesus, but consider themselves to be moral people because they occasionally attend church. That is Bible Belt Christianity, and it's not Christianity at all. And there is a massive amount of people who think they're Christians, and they're not. And, and they're not, not because they struggle with this or they stumble and fall here or they've got this addiction or this struggle has haunted them. They're not because they don't love Jesus and battling that alongside him and his church. Okay, welcome to church. I know you're like, wait, I didn't sign up for this. It's fine. You're here now. It'll be over soon. The last one, and this is 10% of those surveyed, is what they called resilient Disciples, And here's how they define resilient disciples. They are Christians who attend church at least monthly and engage with their church more than just attending worship services. They trust firmly in the authority of the Bible, are committed to Jesus personally, and affirm he was crucified and raised from the dead to conquer sin and death. The fourth piece. They express a desire to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith. That's 10% of this massive survey, which means what we're left with is those leaving angry or those staying but not really believing anything, but some sort of leftover vestige of uh, I'm a good person and good people go to church or I go to church because my folks did. This is, this is like, like raise the alarm. This is like red flags in how we're making disciples and how we're thinking about our moment in history and how we might own, by the grace of God, the calling to be the people of God in a visible, attractive way in this moment in history. And this is the fall, this is the call that falls on all of us, not, not just them. In fact, I have little patience for people who want to dog on generations. Where'd they learn all that? Like when I hear grown-ups be like, they don't have any resilience. Where do they learn no resilience? Maybe because you babied them and coddled them and helicoptered around and never let them suffer. You're, you're born learning resilience when you scream for a bottle and you've got to comfort yourself and you, got, you learn it along the way. And if they don't have resilience, that ain't on them. 
If they don't understand, that falls on us. It's been given to us to commend to the next generation. Not for them to just discover it. Now, God's good. If we fail, he'll raise up a Saul. He'll rescue a Daniel. He'll do what he does. But the call on us is to own this in a way for our own children and for the village in a way that says we're serious about the kingdom of God. And so I'm going to speak to you guys. I want to call you into some stuff, but I'm speaking to us because what I want is thousands of middle school and high school kids all over this place having a safe place to grow into the beauty of the gospel, to be affirmed in their gifting, and to be called towards holiness. That, that's got to be all of us understanding the importance of it. Like there should be a waiting list to volunteer with NextGen. That's where the action is. Like that's where the laughter and play and confession and, and the, the lack of hubris is there. It, it's not, like you get crusty as you get older. You just can't help it. And if you're crusty, crusty, we, we don't want you. We want you in parking or something. We don't want you there. Actually, we don't want you in parking either. That could actually lead to a fight. But the, like this, this is like such a huge deal. Now, if we're gonna do this, if we're gonna own this moment, then I think there are two things that, that we have um, to do. And, and, and I think they're just, they're, there's like, if we do this, whatever comes next, we'll, we'll figure out. The, the first thing is we have to, all of us, them, us, we have to understand the story we're in. Um, all of us, whether we understand it or not, see the world through the lens of story. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sense of pain and beauty. Everybody in this room, everybody in this room has seen the brokenness of this world, man. We, we've seen death, we've seen addiction, we've seen betrayal, we've seen abuse, and, and then we've seen really stunning, beautiful things. And, and so you, you start to frame a, a story that makes sense of all of that that you yourself is in. And whatever story you're telling yourself affects everything about how you live your life. Um, so if you believe you're in a certain story, you're going to treat your money, your time, your energy, your mind, your heart, your emotions, all of that a certain kind of way. But if you're in another story, you'll do it a different kind of way. And so the way I want to start is I want to talk about some of the more popular stories across human history that are also very popular right now. And then I want to tell about the one true story, the only story there actually is, and, and then kind of encourage us to be about living out and embodying that story. Uh, here's the first story that seeks to make sense of light and darkness, pain and beauty. There is no God, no authority other than me. This belief system, this story believes that we exist at random. We just exist at random. There's no God, there's no higher authority, just something happened back there and, and man, miraculously, the right temperature, the right distance from the sun, the right speed, the right makeup of molecules made this thing happen where over an extended period of time, we evolved to this moment in history where here we are. There, there isn't anything transcendent. There just is what is. Pain and death are biological realities. They're not meant to be solved. There just is what is. And I've never met an atheist who says this, but it is a deduction of the belief system. Beauty and love are mere neurological happenings meant to propagate the species and have no deeper meaning or reality. They're simply chemicals in the brain injecting feelings into your life. You are on your 
own, says this story. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And when you die, you cease to be. And that's a story. That's a story that's lived into. It's the story, I I think, of radical individualism. Nothing matters except what I want. Nothing matters but what I feel. And I'm going to live into my story because there's not a greater story. Another one that I think is, again, wildly popular today is this idea that there is a God uh, or some higher power, but, but he or she is toothless and indifferent. So, so this story would say, no, there's, there's a creator. We didn't just poof out of nowhere. There's a creator, God or goddess, maybe a bunch of them, uh, and, and they've kind of created the world, and they've given beauty so that we might admire beauty, but they're kind of indifferent. They're not really waning. They're not managing anything. They're kind of out in the distance. They kind of spun this thing into being, and we can't really know who they are. This is kind of more of that agnostic lineup where, where they would be like, hey, you, you, they exist, but you're still kind of on your own. Right there, there is a creator God, but he's, he's just kind of, he's not paying all that much attention to you. I mean, the universe is a big place. You're kind of a little tiny little speck in it. In fact, you're smaller than a speck in it. Not really worried about you. Figure it out. And, and if you're a good person, in fact, I think this belief system says this. I think we all get into heaven except really, 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 really evil people when all said and done. But the good people like us get into heaven. Now, that standard of goodness is nothing except what the individual person believes. Like, what do you mean by good? I mean me. Everybody gets to heaven if they're good. Is everybody good? Absolutely. By what standard? My standard? This is kind of agnosticism. I'm trying to be fair in the belief systems. Um, And then here's the one that, again, this is one that I'm just trying to attack because I think it's the one that steals and robs from us, I'm talking about the people in this room or maybe the people that are uh, watching live or will watch this later this week, that haunts us and chips away at us and steals from us, but is super demonic. A third story that we tend to tell ourselves is there's a God, but that God has scales. Do you know what I mean by scales? He's going to weigh good versus evil. He's going to set our lives on this scale. And and so we've got this creator God. And by the way, this is most of the world's religions land here, right? And, And it's a lie that Christianity does. But it's a lie that's persuasive and a lot of people buy into it. And I think a lot of people even in this room buy into it. So I want to take a run at it again. There is a God who created us. Not all, but most suffering, pain, and death happens because we don't do what this God has commanded us to do. He will be generous to the obedient, but he will oppose the disobedient. And when you die, he will weigh your good acts versus your bad acts. And if your good acts outweigh your bad acts, then you get heaven forever. Now, how in the world... Biblical Christianity gets lumped into that is madness to me. This is the anti-gospel. Christ came according to the book, not to condemn the world, but to save the world from condemnation. He hadn't come with scales. He didn't come with the law. He came to fulfill the law. And if you live in the, it does not surprise me when people are wounded and hurt by the church and bail on it because this is what they got taught. This is not moralistic deism. That's not what we believe. We believe the gospel, and that brings me to the only story that's actually true, and that's that the creator God of the universe, triune in nature, this is a big deal. 
that he is triune is huge. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in perfect harmony and union and love and gladness out of that white hot center. Love, beauty overflows onto the canvas of creation. God was not lonely and so he decided to make humankind. That's not what's happening. Out of an overflow of protection, out of an overflow of delight, out of an overflow in love and beauty, the universe comes into being and the Bible says over and over as a refrain, it was good, it was good. Dang, it was good. It was, that's amazing. That is beautiful. And God creates this world where he begins to walk intimately with his creation. And the Bible says that we were naked and unashamed. That has less to do with nudity and everything to do with the state of our heart. Look at me. Can you imagine a world where the temptation to hide doesn't even exist? Where that haunting question of am I enough isn't always percolating in your head, that you're not always trying to weigh yourself against other people. You're just naked and unashamed. This is me, but not in a wicked way, but in a way that's innocent and upright before God. And that everything is beautiful and right and good. The Hebrews would use the word shalom, rhythm, peace, harmony. That wherever you looked, there was goodness. The Bible tells us that that didn't last long before the fall occurred, and the fall is the fracturing of God's good creation in the rebellion of humankind that desired instead to be their own gods. And what we see happening, the category that Christians have for suffering and pain and death is that sin entered the cosmos, which was perfect and beautiful, and fractured it down to the cellular level that fractured it at the macro level, fractured it at the micro level, that across all of creation, humankind used their free will to decide, I'm a better God than God is, and turned their back on this offer of love and power and intimacy and goodness to be stewarded throughout his good creation. And we see not long after this, jealousy, envy, nakedness, murder, death, and chaos sown into the world. And we see this creator move towards his wicked, rebellious children in love. He, he comes and, and he saves them from slavery. And for those of you who are still kind of struggling with that law thing of, am I good enough? Does he give the law before he saves them from slavery or when he got them to the cusp of the promised land? They didn't have to obey the law to get saved. He showed up, I'm your God, I'm big enough. What if I can't speak? I'll speak for you. What are we gonna do for food? I got you. Where are we gonna get something to drink? Got you, hit the rock. Like he's just like, I'm here, I'll protect you. I am your God, you are my people, come on. And then what do we do? Goodness sakes, we turned our backs again. We did the same thing. And what does he do, destroy everybody? No. He, he sets up the, the tabernacle right in the middle of his people. Then he sets up the temple right in the middle of Jerusalem. And then, here's the good news. God condescended and came down. God the Son, second person of the Trinity, has always been and will ever be put on flesh. Are you serious? Like, who is like our God so that you would never be able to say that he doesn't get it? Like he was, according to the writer of Hebrews, said he was tempted in every way and yet without sin. And that you and I have an empathetic high priest. Look at me, struggler. 
you have an empathetic high priest. Hey, you got a bit of a secret pervert thing going on? You know what you have? An empathetic high priest. You feel shame all the time. You know who wants to rescue you from that? This creator whose love and beauty are so vast that they exploded onto the canvas of creation and keep expanding in every direction to this very day. And then, that sweet redemption when Jesus goes to the cross, maybe you're like me, like when I, when I first started coming to church, I had no idea what this guy, this Jew 2,000 years ago had to do with me and how his death kind of was supposed to do something for me, but what's happening in the moment, and this is, again, it's just so hard to, it's so hard to believe that you have to have the Holy Spirit's help to believe. And even then you're gonna wrestle with the Holy Spirit to try to believe it. That is that Christ's perfect life, something I could never do, weak as I am in the flesh, his righteousness imputed to me, given to me, and all of God's wrath towards all of my sin, follow me, past, present, and future are fully, freely, forever absorbed by God on the cross. And when Jesus rises, we see that the bill has been paid in full. And, and so I always try to tell you this, like all of our sin was future sin when Jesus died on the cross. You kidding me? Do you really think that Christ saved you while you were at your worst and now he's disappointed in you five years later? Like I'm curious about whether or not you believe the God with the scales. Man, I'm preaching the gospel all the time because I need to believe it. After 30 years, I still need to believe it. Like, I know me. Like, I, I, like if you ever email me, I'm so disappointed in you. I was like, golly, you're, you don't get any closer then. It'll get a lot. If that bothered you, you don't want to get, like, I know me. This is hard for me to believe. I find my, I'm a striver. Anybody else? I mean, I'm a striver. I'm like, tell me what hill to take for you, King Jesus. And oftentimes he's like, I'd, I'd rather just kind of sit here with you. What? I like you. I can't, no, you can't. Are you aware of that? Oh, man, I was aware of that one. It was far worse. But I began the good work and I'll finish it to completion. And then, here's what, it just gets crazy. If that doesn't blow your circuits, then from there, this redemption leads to consummation. So what ends up happening in the story, the only story that is, is that when the Holy Spirit opens up my heart to believe, he fills me with his Holy Spirit, strengthening and empowering my natural giftedness and giving me spiritual gifts meant to be used in whatever domain he placed me to push back the darkness and establish light until he returns and makes all things new. There's our purpose, there's our justice, there's living lives of meaning and depth, not just getting together and singing, no, the good news is that Christ has come to save those far from God. He has redeemed us from our foolishness. He has committed to complete us, and he swore by his own name, not by your name. Not like, I swear by your effort that I'll save you. That's not the game. You're saved, and now, come on, let me sanctify you. This is the only story there is. This is how we make sense of suffering and beauty, redemption and loss it's because this is the story of the universe and all the other ones are counterfeit that lead you to rot. We've gotta know this and get it and this is why, listen, this is why the psalmist writes this. This is the story they understand themselves to be in. So he says, look at verse one. I will extol you, I'll make a big deal about you 
my God and King and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on the wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and they shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Do you see why somebody would do that? They're like, I've, I've been redeemed. I am not my worst day. I am beloved by the God of the universe. I have been bought with a price that he has lifted me out of the muck and the mire. He has set my feet on a rock. He has put a hymn of praise in my mouth. And I can meditate on it. Like, I have no idea where I would be if he didn't come and rescue me. I know my bloodline is nasty. Some jail, some mental illness, a lot of violence, a lot of sexual perversion. And the Lord in his grace was like, not you, come here. And we're going to have to wrestle some of that nonsense, but come here. And then for 30 years now, his patient, steadfast, ridiculous, nonsensical love has picked me back up and gone, come on. I know, come on. This is, this is why people are losing their money. I'm going to extol. I'm going to tell everyone. I'm going to lay in bed and think about it. What are you laying in bed and thinking about? This brother here is like, oh, man, I'm, I'm thinking about what I would have been had the Lord not grabbed me. Oh, my God, I got to tell somebody. I got to tell somebody. I mean, I, I don't even know what I'd, I'd be a mess. Gosh, I'm a mess now, and he saved me. I'd be like uber mess. Right? This is the only story there is, and we have to know it and preach it and embody it and live emboldenedly in it. Because if you live the story of the scales, which most Christians are prone to, then you're actually, that's like a demonic story. Look at me, I love you. You're being enslaved. Look at me, this is gonna sound crazy. Do you know what God wants most from you? You. Do you know what God wants most from you? You. Not your awesomeness. Not your gifts. Not your moral aptitude. He wants you. And all that will ever be transformed in you won't come by your effort, but it'll come by you being in his presence and being shown the beauty of Christ as opposed to the wickedness of this world. And you'll be drawn into his beauty away from brokenness. And that's the way we change. Not your white knuckle discipline. That enslaves. We've got to know the story. And, and guys, um, middle school, high schoolers, you've got to understand this is the story you're in, that there's a very real enemy that seeks to destroy you that there are lies that, that are pointed directly at you, that, that there is a way to destroy you that's subversive and under the radar that's all story-based. Here's what I'm, if you will stop for a second and pay attention, one of these stories is behind every show, every movie, and every post on the internet. You tracking with me? If you'll wake up, every television show, I'm sorry, every show that you stream, every song, Every post is telling one of these stories. It's how formation works. What's the story you're in? How will you make sense of darkness and light? One will rot the soul. The other ones will, this one will bring life. It's the only story that there actually is. The others are false stories. They're lies. 
which is why the church comes together to practice this story when we gather. This is not the only thing that we need to know the story we're in. My second point, and I know you're like looking at your watch and like, no way, but way. The second point, I've only got two, so we're gonna be all right, is that we must know the story and embody it and then become a place of unrelenting grace. Listen to the last two verses in Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all he has made. When I talk about being a place of unrelenting grace, I'm gonna talk about two things. One, and I wanna speak to the adults in the room, Um, One is that you allow the grace of God to rest on you in such a way that you heal from the things that you need to heal from. I'm gonna say that again. One of the things I mean by unrelenting grace is that you as a grown-up treat violently the broken parts of you because we will hand down what we are more than what we say. And there are a few things I hate as a parent as that being true. So here's, we'll just do it. Brothers, sisters, you got a lust porn problem? Believe the grace of God. Step into the light. Get some help. Brothers, sisters, you got an anger issue? You got a cynicism issue? You're like always on a hair trigger ready to explode? The grace of God is here for you. Step into the light. Let it be covered. Get help. What is the church except a safe space to go? We're all broken morons traveling this long road together. We desperately need one another following our shepherd, King Jesus. Like this is a long, long journey home. But if we're going to do this, we're going to step into this moment of history. It will take you being violent towards the things that have haunted you. Like, I know my bloodline. I am pleading with the Lord and putting up a fight that the stuff from the last 200 years will go on the ground with me. Now, that don't mean my kids don't have stuff. Like, we don't, we don't, nobody gets to escape that. There ain't no capes in parenting. All of our kids are being formed by what we are in good and negative ways. It just means their stuff won't be the stuff that's haunted us for 200 years. I mean, Lauren and I have done every, I mean, we've done counseling, we've done weird prayer, we, we've, I mean, we've done, you name it, I, I've been in it. I'm like, I want to break these things off of me. I don't want to hand these to my son. I don't want to hand these to my daughter. Let it, be, let it be a new story of struggle when I'm in the ground. My daddy and mommy started the work, and I just called her mommy. Uh, so there you go. Uh, my mom and dad started the work and then I've gone hard after. I mean, I have been violent towards stuff. I've been wild. And I'm, you got to do it, moms and dads. And then kids, next gen, here's what I would tell you. God has an unreal amount of grace and delight for you. And if you're not careful, the accusation of the enemy is going to get you to hide and, and to lie and to not step into the light. And when you do that, you actually give the enemy power because what he's after is isolating you, making you feel like it's only you and you're all alone, and then ultimately destroying you. And I want you to hear me say that we're gonna be a place where it's okay to not be okay. And and that would take me back over to you guys. Look at me, let's have an honest comment. You were an idiot at 17. 
Maybe, let me use a different word. That's a harsh one. You were dumb. <laughs> when you were 17, you were dumb because as you're growing your prefrontal cortex, it ain't all there yet, man. It ain't all online. And so if I got a chance to sit down with you and we were talking about you at 17, my guess is you were a better athlete back then than you actually were. You know, you, you were like third string, you know, freshman team and then quit. But you would let me know that if it wasn't for that knee, your sophomore year, you might've been pro, right? And, and so your athletic ability will increase and your honesty about how dumb you were will decrease. And we want to be a place that says, we know these years are hard. We know these years matter. And it's okay. It's okay to not be okay. We are a safe place to struggle. But if you won't deal with your stuff, here's what I found. I have found people that don't deal with their own sin get really vindictive and mean towards people who are struggling with the same sin. That's evil. And that's why this path of healing and confession and help begins to hand down to the next generation the grace that we ourselves received. And so we talk about a place of unrelenting grace. We apply it to ourselves and we extend it to what's next. Now, I love this. This is Luke 15, one through two. It kind of creates two different opportunities here and, and we're gonna fight like crazy to be the first and not the second. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Yeah, we do. You know why? I, in my younger days in, church, in the church planning world, people would use this verse as kind of licentiousness. Like they'd go, you know, be in the bars all the time. Like that's where Jesus was, right? But I, I think really the thrust of it here, look at me is that Jesus is having something with you. It's not freedom for you to wild out. It's like, hey, he's gonna sit down and eat with even you. He welcomes me in his presence. It's wild. But if we're gonna be a place, we're gonna be a place where the tax collectors and sinners gather to hear and as best we can fight against and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled because they were there. There's been less of that in the last 10 years. The first 10 years here had some of it. We're like, there's people smoking on the front porch, pastor. I was like, mm-hmm. There's some women dressed like strippers. Well, those are actually strippers. <laughs> praise God. I mean, you're giggling. I'm not making a joke. This is a real conversation. Like, praise God they're here to hear. When we lift our eyes to the heavens, let's not be too quick to judge her. You have no idea where she's coming from. I mean, she's like, a, like, like her, her background like, is the kind of abuse and drug abuse. And like, praise God that they're here to hear. They're like, I can't believe they're dressed. I can't believe they're smoking in the parking lot. I can't believe. Give somebody a chance to hear the gospel and be formed by it. I'm not talking about licentiousness. There's a call to holiness. How well have you applied that to your life over the last decade? Slower than you'd like? You're saying that or you're a liar. You're saying that or you're a liar. I just wanted to make it super quiet there. Now, where do we go from here? Well, here's what's great about the data. The data shows if these things are present, then you have a better shot at resilient disciples. And so let me walk through that. The first one is meaningful relationships. Meaningful relationships, both with peers 
and with older men and women. One of, my fun, one of the things I laughed out loud at um, is in the, the data, the, that generation's really clear that they don't need us to be cool. In fact, if we try, it's really cringy. And even me using that word, I just did what I'm not supposed to do. But this is what, they, here's what's great. They don't need you to be cool. In fact, it, you're either cool or you're not, and you're trying to be comes off as inauthentic, and they flag nothing quicker than inauthentic people. Meaningful relationship. Here, here's a dream that I have. What if there was a waiting list to work with NextGen because we so believed this was our moment in history? Like, what if you're like, man, I'd really like to work with uh, students. And we had to be like, oh, you know what? Okay, well, in about three or four years, we'll have some people rotate out. Or maybe a revival will break out and we'll get a thousand new kids. And, and then we'll have space for you. But right now, man, just why don't you come and, and be around. But man, meaningful relationship. You want resilient disciples. We need meaningful relationships. He, he says here, I'm, I'm going to go on a rant, but we're already four minutes over. Let's do it. We need, they need, and we need cultural discernment. I mean, at this point, I'm probably already offended you. Um, they are drowning in a sea of lies and misrepresentation, and we are afraid to say anything. Let, let me tell you, um, I was... I was on my device, I'm, I'm kind of like scrolling through stuff, I've got this podcast coming out, so I'm trying to post, I'm trying to interact with people that are mad about what I'm posting, and trying to say, no, 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 not that, this, and, and that's kind of a waste of time, but I, I'm, I'm doing that, and then, man, I, I'm, I posted a reel, I, I didn't, a reel was made for me, and I posted it, uh, and, and then I, I started scrolling through other reels, and I saw this reel where this woman was like, uh, I have a master, I have an MA in biblical theology from this, um, this university, and I just want you to know that the word homosexuality didn't appear in the Bible until 1946. Look at me, that's actually true. Do you know what word didn't exist before 1946? Homosexuality. So the concept's there, but the word's not. But do you see the subversive game? I'm an expert. God loves you. You should be able to do whatever you want because God loves you. This is evil. And because we're afraid to say anything, because we're going to be, like, we're going to be labeled as, as hateful and causing people to kill themselves, and that we can't ever say what's true, which is regardless of your struggle, Jesus loves you. This is not a psychological issue. You don't need healing or deliverance. You, you need to give your heart to Christ, lower among yourself, among his authority, and then walk with the people of God through your struggle because everyone in the room has one. And so the game is not deliverance. The game is King Jesus and all of us on this long journey home together where it requires death to self, death to self, death to self, death to self. So if that's your struggle, my thing is welcome home. We want you here, but you will never hear from us. Do what's in your heart. You're not going to hear that here because it'd be unloving and wicked, not loving and kind. But we just don't want to say, like, oh, we're going to be categorized as not. Listen, I, 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 know my, I know who sat around my dinner table. I'm not buying the whole, you'll be happier if you let go. Not what I've seen. But if we're like, hey, welcome home. My house is open for you. You come here for dinner anytime. You, you call me, we'll just go for a four-hour car ride. I've been stuck in compulsions. I needed help. We will have to have cultural IQ. This is why I love, you know, we do the ID retreat, like fifth graders start to learn about sex and sexuality here. Why we're aiming young. 
And then here's what, let me, again, I'm just trying to, the number of you that have been like, ah, that's, I just don't think my kid's ready for that. I think we should be starting in third grade. And if you got your kid a phone earlier than that, I mean, they are being bombarded by ridiculous lies while most of us remain silent because we don't want to be seen as hateful. The most loving, kind thing we can ever do is call people into the beauty of Jesus who will walk faithfully with us regardless of our struggle, regardless of our, it's the thing we hold most in common. What I have most in common with you is I am a fellow struggler on my way to glory and Christ has promised to keep me. And he's given me to you and you to me to help me get there. It doesn't mean that my struggles are ever going away. It doesn't mean that I'm gonna have compulsions that one day vanish forever. It's one of the ways he binds me to himself is my own compulsions. Like I need you, not I got this. And the more we talk about issues of sexuality, like their psychology and not just like God's call on our lives, his call to repent and to trust him and to hold fast that he's better than life, we're always gonna say cruel things to people who are struggling. I'm gonna pray some stuff away. The world's broken, so we cling to one another in the storm. And I'm like, I freaking love you. I'm here for you. And you better hold fast to me because I'm not going to make it if you don't. And the Bible describes Christianity like that frequently. Now, is there supernatural breakthrough? Absolutely there is. And praise God when it happens. But it's miraculous. And I do think it happens more than we think it does. But it doesn't happen for everyone. And I think there's an over-realized eschatology that would disagree with me. I'm all right with it. I just don't believe it because I've pastored too long. Cultural discernment, mentoring opportunities, both to be mentored and to mentor. If you're a high school, if you're especially if you're a junior or senior, not only do I want mentors in your life, but I would love for you to have a heart for middle schoolers where you're letting them know it's going to be okay. Um, another big one is, this is vocational discipleship. This is a means of helping people understand what they're called to do, they're made to do. So here's what I would say. Like one of the things I love about watching this is these young men and women, they've been given a gift by God. Did you see how happy they were using it? Hopefully that was infectious to the rest of the room, but how, how amazing does it feel to go, oh my gosh, God put something in me. So what I want to be committed to for you is to like help you find that and then cheer you on because I don't think you're the church of the future. I, I think you're here right now. And I think that's awesome. So um, the, the last one, um, and then I'm going to end with a story, uh, but it's a quick story, um, is we must have a strong identity in Christ. So this idea of union with Christ in the data is this huge piece where you must understand that you are first and foremost, not your achievements, not your athletic abilities, not your gift uh, on an instrument. You, you are not, like, like I would say it this way, I am not first and foremost the pastor of the village church or Lauren's husband or Audrey uh, Reed and Nora's daddy. I am first and foremost a son of God beloved by the creator of the universe and that's what you will never be able to take from me. You can hate me, there can be tragedies, but what will be sure is that God began this good work in me and he's promised to finish it and he calls me his beloved and that's insane. And it's what is most true about me. Not anything, what is most true about me is not that I can preach or I can lead or any of that, it was all secondary nonsensical, can be taken, I'm missing my right frontal lobe. I could have lost it 13 years ago. So what makes me me 
is that I'm a son of God, a prince, an heir of the promise, not because of anything I've done, but freely lavished by King Jesus on me. And this is what we have a scope and sequence from birth to 18, where we're trying to just weave this all through our kids' hearts and minds. So if they're in preschool, let me say this, we don't babysit. So you got babies right now, those babies are being prayed over. They're praying the Holy Spirit would very early open up their eyes to see the goodness and beauty of Jesus. They're, They're being prayed over. And then as they get into their older preschool years, we're just doing Christian story. Here's the story we're in. But this is the only story there is. And then as they move to elementary, we want to go Christian belief, but not moralism. We want to go, this is who God is. In fact, you got elementary schools. We're always going, hey, look up. God is strong. He is mighty. He wants to hear from us. He is. And we're just trying to orient their little hearts around the goodness of God because that becomes the foundation upon which in middle school and high school, we can start talking spiritual formation and Christian formation. And, and we've got it like, like a scope and sequence Birth to 18 here, because we believe that identity in Christ will carry the day with these other pieces. Now, let me end with this. I want to introduce you to Sam. He's sixth grader. Let's look at little Sam here. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to give him a break for the Arizona Cardinal hat. I'm just guessing that maybe this is when Emmett was playing. Uh, But this is little sixth grade Sam, uh, and Sam's dad was invited by a guy Gosh, years and years and years ago to come to the village, there were some dynamics in the family that were difficult. Uh, and so uh, a friend of his dad said, man, you ought to come uh, to this church. You know, it's, I mean, it's pretty young and God seems to be doing some cool stuff there. And so uh, his, Sam's uh, daddy and mama came and the Lord did a pretty profound work in his family's life by the grace of God, through Christ among you, uh, the hope of glory. And then little Sam heads to spin weekend, which is kind of our offsite thing for kids. And Sam's sitting there and Bo Hughes is preaching the gospel. He's the village church, didn't, and and Bo's preaching the gospel and the Holy Spirit ignites little Sam's heart. And and for the first time ever, he's like, oh my gosh, it's real. Anybody else remember that moment where you kind of knew some of the stories you knew and somebody was preaching or somebody was talking to you and all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, it's real. And it just rocked him. And then he came back and, and a guy named Blake Children now pastors a church down in Bryan College Station and, and, and another guy named Caleb Beats and, and Matt McCauley, who's our family minister. So they start pouring into Sam, but they're not the only ones. There's this guy who was a firefighter named Rich Cottle and there was a teacher at Flower Mound High School named Adam Griffin. They started to meet with little awkward Sam every week. They'd read the Bible with him. They would call up what they saw in him. They would remind him of who the God of the Bible was. They would walk with him through his failures and his stumbling. And then uh, sweet little Sam went off uh, to college. And, and you know Sam. Like, like, let me show you. This is Sam. That's it. Like Sam is our student director here. Like he's the one that sits over. And what you see happening in Sam's story is all of this stuff we're talking about. A seriousness about the Bible. A call to holiness. Ordinary men and women coming around and saying, I see you. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to meet with you once a week. We're just going to read the Bible together. And you bring me whatever you've got. And I'm with you in it. And this is what I want for us. A thousand Sam's. And so here's what I'm going to do, and here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Um, And then we've got to get out of here. I am going to ask the elders of this church for a gazillion dollars. Not literally. I'm going to ask for a lot of resources over the next three years to be freed up in this direction. 
And I want you to prayerfully consider what role you might have. Like that we, like I said earlier, like I just think there should be a waiting list to work with the next generation. Who plays and has more fun than, like some of you need to be hearkened back to playfulness. You've just gotten too crusty. Some of you have lost hope in the future. You're not seeing what I'm seeing up here? See how big this student band is? You know, I'm telling you, Jesus is doing profound things across next gen. I mean, gosh, there, there was just a testimony. I, I read this, like one of our staff women that, that work in Com, like, like they came to that night where we were talking uh, about Indian culture and the gospel slamming into Hinduism and her little five-year-old was like sharing the gospel with this little Indian boy at the playground. Like God's at work and moving and doing profound and powerful things all around next gen. And, and I think you should hop in, man. I think you should figure out a way to create some space to serve God in that place that's in such desperate need for spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. What an opportunity we have. But you'll have to seize it. We'll staff towards it, we'll free up dollars for it, but it's not gonna be dollars and staff that are the secret sauce of it all. It'll be you and me opening up our homes, having a breakfast with the Bible in front of us, encouraging, speaking life into, remembering that we were dumb once too, and we should encourage with grace, and then become this man or woman in the life of this young man or woman that shapes the whole trajectory of his life. Well, I got kids, great, you should start there. But as we talked about uh, two weeks ago, or no, last week, like we're, we need to have spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers also, and spiritual brothers and spiritual sisters. What an opportunity to get involved, all right? Uh, I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna sing just a, a quick song. Right? We're going to sing a prayer to make us more like Jesus. Then I'm going to come out, we're going to do communion, going to baptize somebody, going to lose our minds about that, and then we're going to go into our day. Okay? There are going to be men and women up here um, at the end of our service. You're walking in the darkness. You, you want to believe the gospel for the first time. This actually happened in the night. Like a guy uh, afterward just ran up. We didn't plan on baptizing. He just kind of got baptized between services because he, he was like, man, I'm on the scales. I don't want to be in the scales. I want to be in that story. And if that's you, man, come on, let's do it. This is the only story that ever is. Whatever you're telling yourself right now, he sees you. He loves you. He's for you. Don't, don't turn your, don't be a habitual churchgoer. What a lame hobby. It's just a lame hobby. There are better hobbies. Get a boat. <laughs> Father, I bless these men and women in the name of Jesus. You are good and gracious and kind. God, we want to own this moment by your grace and for your glory. We don't want to abandon this generation that's being so tossed about and attacked and undermined and chipped away at. We want to stand in the gap. We want to cry out with our lives and our money and our, not on our watch. So I pray that you'd pour out your spirit in a way that, man, we can't get our mind around on this next generation. I, I thank you that historically speaking, when things get dark, that's when you do that. And so I'm just asking, I, I just want to encourage them. <laughs> Would you 
pour yourself out in a profound way. And I know it's going to be a way that wigs us out a little bit, and I'm all right with that. You just call us right to the redemptive edge. Would you give us a heart that breaks for those who are struggling with gender stuff and sexuality? Just let our hearts break and long to come alongside and go, man, I, I, you're welcome in this place. We, we're here for it. And that more than anything else, we just known as a place that lives the story. And as a place where it's okay to not be okay, that clings to one another on the long, hard, messy road home. Who is like you, O oh God, in the heavens that keeps moving towards us in such crazy divine love? It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen.